Tonight in our study of Isaiah, we're looking at uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12. Chapter 12 is pretty short. It's only about six verses, and uh, I thought I would just include both of these chapters together in our lesson tonight. And uh, I've entitled this lesson, A Glorious Future. And one of the interesting things about Isaiah, especially in the opening chapters of Isaiah, is he seems to go back and forth between rebuke of Israel in its current condition of sinfulness and rebellion, and then quickly pivots toward a view of the future in which there is hope and blessing and peace and prosperity and righteousness. And so it's, it's, he's kind of going back and forth between present and future, present in, this, in Israel as she is now, which is not good, and then the future Israel as she will be in the future under God's grace and mercy when he brings in his kingdom. And so he kind of pivots back and forth between those viewpoints. And tonight in chapter 11 and chapter 12, we're looking at a very positive uh, look at a hopeful future. And if you remember last week, he had just uh, finished rebuking Assyria for their wickedness. And so to kind of follow the train of thought in Isaiah, the way that these visions are put together is you have Isaiah rebuking Israel for their disobedience and warning them that as a part of God's chastisement on them for their disobedience, he's going to send Assyria to come and defeat them and imprison them. But then he reminds all of God's people that God is just and, and he will take care of Assyria too because Assyria is also wicked and a violent people. And so most of chapter 10 is about a, a woe judgment on Assyria for their wickedness and their paganism. Then we have in chapter 11 a quick turn toward a glorious future. And if there are some literary links between the ending of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, I think it would be found in the analogy of the tree. Because the interesting thing is, is the way chapter 10 ends, it is a picture of God cutting down a forest. And Assyria is viewed as that forest. And so God is cutting down the trees and in judgment. It's, a, it's an image, a poetic image of the judgment that God's going to bring on Assyria. But then the way chapter 11 opens, it also opens with a tree. Technically, it opens with the stump of a tree. And out of that stump of a tree is going to grow a branch. And so there is in this vision of a glorious future, a very clear presentation of the ministry of the future Messiah, whom we know as Jesus, Jesus the Christ. And so that is a part of this glorious future. And Isaiah describes him as a branch that comes up out of the root or the stump of Jesse. And so it's interesting literary links of this idea of trees that joins these together, even though their outlooks are, are incredibly different. Assyria, judgment, but then future hope for God's people. So let's look at uh, these two chapters tonight, and really it breaks down into a couple of sections. Chapter 11 
I've called a future to long for, or you might say a future to hope for. And it is a description of the reign of Messiah and the kingdom that he will bring. And so it's a future to long for, to wish for, to put our hope in. And then chapter 12 is a future to sing about. Because chapter 12, those six verses, it is basically like a psalm. And it is a a hymn of praise to God for his salvation and his wonderful grace. And so a future to long for and a future to sing about. And so let's look at chapter 11, which is a future to long for. And part of that future is a future Messiah. Verses 1 through 5, very clear description of the coming of a future individual who will rule and who will reign just like David, except a new David and even better than David. And that is the coming branch out of the the stump of Jesse. And so chapter 11, verse 1 says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, and the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. So it's a, it's a beautiful description, isn't it, of this future ruler. And I'm going to back up just a little bit here to verse 1. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Isaiah describes this future branch as coming not from the line of David, but it goes back a generation earlier to the stump of Jesse. Who was Jesse? Jesse was David's father, right? And so he goes back a generation earlier. Why would he do that? Well, one of the, a couple of the commentaries that I read suggested that Perhaps what is intended, and there are a couple other passages in the prophets that may hint at this idea, that maybe what is intended is that the Messiah, while he will be in the line of David, he'll be a descendant of David, in tracing him back to Jesse, it's almost like he's establishing a new Davidic line, almost like a new David. So not just a a replacement of David, but a new David, a better David. One who will reign in a way that even David never could. And if you think about it, that's pretty remarkable from an Old Testament context. Especially if you read Kings and Chronicles, and you read the analysis or the uh, the critique of the kings who reigned in Judah and Israel, and almost always the benchmark for the rule of that king is David. So either the king ruled righteously like David, his father, or he did not rule righteously like David, his father. And so David was the benchmark for all Old Testament kings. And now 
there is another one who's going to come, who's going to be even greater. And even though David was a man after God's own heart, and he is described as a person who walked in, in the ways of the Lord and ruled righteously, David wasn't perfect, was he? He had many flaws, some of them very big flaws. But this new ruler from the stump of Jesse, he'll be even better, and he will bear fruit. Ahab, or not Ahab, Ahaz, who is the king of Israel, or of Judah at this time, he was pretty much a a fruitless king, and did not trust the word of Isaiah when he came to him and said, ask for a sign, anything, any miraculous sign. He didn't believe, he didn't trust, he didn't ask the Lord for a sign. And as a ruler, he was pretty fruitless, but this coming one will bear much fruit. And that is many, many acts, many good acts that he will accomplish on behalf of the Lord. And then we have a description in verse 2 of the close association of this coming one with the Spirit of the Lord. Now, we have many examples in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit coming on people. David is one of them. David is one on whom the Spirit came and dwelt, had his presence on him, his blessing. But certainly there was no one who was in closer fellowship with the Holy Spirit than Jesus Christ was there. We know, we see in his baptism, when he is baptized by John the Baptist, that the Holy Spirit descends, right? It's a picture of the Holy Spirit descending from heaven as like a dove, it says, and he comes down and rests on Jesus in, in apparently to John what was, was a visible form that it could be seen and witnessed. And from there on out, there was a very close relationship between Jesus and the Spirit. We, we could even say that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit of God. And that anointing took place at his baptism. And here it describes the ministry of the Messiah in cooperation with the spirit. And that is, he will have a spirit of wisdom and of understanding to rule, right? To rule in wisdom and in understanding the spirit of counsel and of might. The idea of counsel there is, is very closely connected with wisdom and understanding, but, but seeking out wisdom from others and ruling in line with that wisdom that you have sought out might strength, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so, and by the way, many of those terms, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fear of the Lord, many of those are found in close proximity in the opening words of Proverbs. So Proverbs, a book about seeking wisdom, mentions many of these terms. And so this coming ruler, this coming king, he will be the personification of wisdom, won't he? personification of wisdom in the flesh and he will rule in such a way that it will be wise and right and he will be like no one else before him one who is characterized by knowing and fearing the lord that is an old testament description isn't it of a follower of god one who feared the lord one who believed in him trusted in him walked in his ways certainly no one better than the lord jesus in that And verse 3 says that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. It'll be his joy, his love to walk in harmony with the Lord. And because of the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge and the fear of the Lord with which he will live his life and perfect his rule, 
he will be someone who is not guilty of making quick, rash decisions or surface-level decisions. But he will be one who is insightful, who is who can see and through the situation and understand the depths of it and the true nature of it. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions to the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So in other words, this king, there will be no fooling him because he'll see through the, the external facade. He'll, he'll see through the exterior and he'll make right judgments, just judgments, and he'll take care of the oppressed and the poor and those who are often treated badly in society. He will watch out for them and care for them. And he will, he will be a king who executes justice and righteousness. He'll strike the, the earth with the rod of his mouth, probably closely associated with his word. So with the word of his truth will go his justice. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. In verse 5, it says, Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. If that sounds a little bit familiar to you, the, the imagery, the language there is very, very close to Paul in Ephesians 6 with the armor of the Lord. So the breastplate of righteousness, the, the belt of truth. So those imagery, that imagery that Paul uses in Ephesians, there's part of it right here of literally clothed with these attributes of, of righteousness and faithfulness. That is a great picture of a great ruler, isn't it? And now here's the thing. He came, didn't he? He came. Jesus came and he exhibited many of these qualities in his ministry and his first coming. He was certainly wise, wasn't he? He was understanding. He, he spoke truth. He spoke wisdom. He, he treated with compassion the, the poor and the afflicted and the blind and the lame. You can even see in the way that he cared for people and healed them the kind of king that he would be in his reign. And so we see many of these qualities lived out in his life when he came. But in terms of the ruling and the reigning aspect of this, there's an aspect of that which is going on now as Jesus reigns from heaven. But there's also a future aspect to it too, isn't there? when Jesus comes back and rules and reigns here in this world. But he will be a future glorious king. And so there is a future to look forward to, a future Messiah. And there's also a future peace. Now, this peace that we're going to describe in verses 6 through 10, the peace that is coming is not disconnected from the Messiah. In other words, the only way that this peace will come is because the Messiah has come and he brings his just and righteous rule to the world. And so he brings this perfect peace, shalom, if you will, the Hebrew word for peace. Jesus will bring it in his kingdom. And so a future peace, unlike any that the world has ever seen, like the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. 
The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, that's a beautiful description, isn't it? So you have in verses 6, 7, and 8, essentially what appears to be a reversal of the curse. So in the book of Genesis chapter 3, you have Adam and Eve disobeying God. And a part of the consequences for their disobedience was the curse on creation itself. And so you have Adam toiling in the sweat of his work with against thorns and thistles, hard ground. You have um, Eve battling and travailing in her role of motherhood. And those are just those are just examples, right, of all of the curse and all of the, the futility and the travail, as Paul describes in Romans eight all of the sense of frustration and futility that is characteristic of this whole world right now in the present. And Isaiah seems to be pointing toward a future in which all of that is reversed. All of that is undone. That There won't be any more predators. There won't be any more carnivorous predators. So you can have a wolf and a lamb playing together, lying down together. That, that doesn't fit in our minds, does it? Or you can have a leopard and a goat together in the same pen. You can have a young calf and a lion together. You can have a child leading them. You can have a child playing near a cobra's den. So just a complete reversal of everything that we expect and everything that we are accustomed to in our current world. It's going to be all new, isn't it? And so there are, there are many, and I, I tend to agree with this viewpoint, that this is a description of the glorious future at the end of time. When, and, and Isaiah himself will describe this even in more detail at the end of Isaiah chapter 65, where he, he presents a picture of a new heavens and a new earth. And the apostle John picks up on that in the book of Revelation and describes a new heaven and a new earth. And so I, I see these as being fulfilled in, in that time. So we haven't experienced this yet. This is something that's still future. But it's something we have to look forward to. It's almost like a return to Eden, except even better. It's, it's Eden 2.0, we might say. It's, it's better than Eden. But that's, what, that's the future that God has planned for all of his people. And it's a glorious one. And in that time, there'll be no, no destruction, no harm to one another. Why? Because the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And that, that conveys a sense that, that there will be no more sin, no more wickedness, no more violence. But the whole world will be a place of perfect peace and perfect righteousness. And that's coming when our Lord Jesus comes back. And in that day... Verse 10 says, the root of Jesse, who is this? It's the one he started the chapter with, this, this little shoot, this root that's coming up out of the stump of Jesse, this branch. 
this future Messiah, he will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. What does he mean by a banner? Well, in the ancient world, typically a banner was a rallying point. It was kind of like a flag, you might say, and it was often used in battle, in warfare, often used uh, in people marching together. But it was, a, it was something that drew people to a point, drew people together, gathered them around. Jesus will be the banner, the Messiah. He will be the one who calls all nations to himself and rallies not just the Jewish people, but all the nations of the world. And so even in the Old Testament, we see that it was always God's plan for the good news to go out to the nations. And that ultimately, God's salvation would extend not just to the people of Israel, but to the world. And he would draw them in. And so it will be a glorious time, a future peace. This is a peace that no one has ever experienced. Maybe Adam and Eve, but not even they to the extent that we will experience it in the future kingdom of God. Is that not something to look forward to? And, and is that not something that can give you hope and encouragement in times of trouble. And and that's one of the reasons why I think Isaiah and the other prophets, they keep going back to these visions of the future because of what they were going through in the present. And I'm convinced that that is one of the main reasons why prophecy is given to us in Scripture is, is not necessarily so that we can prognosticate the future and have everything all figured out ahead of time. I think generally speaking, the reason for prophecy is to give a vision of the future that encourages people in the present and motivates them and gives them life and hope and strength for what they're dealing with in in the moment. And so this is incredibly encouraging. And so it was encouraging to them. It's, It's still encouraging to us, isn't it? So this was written, what, 2,700 years ago? And we're still longing for this day. We're still longing for this peace that Isaiah describes. And so when we have a difficult day, a difficult week, when we're going through trials, man, come read Isaiah 11, 6 or 10, and look at the vision of the future that God is holding out to and promised to us, right? To everyone who is a child of God. And so it's a future peace in the reign of Messiah. And then verses 11 through 16 describe a future homecoming, a future homecoming. And the way that Isaiah describes it is essentially like a regathering of God's people. So verse 11 says, in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. So God is going to gather his people. Why would God need to gather his people? Well, let's look at it at two levels. Well, on one level, the immediate historical level of Isaiah's time, many of the Israelite people had been scattered. Right. So the Assyrians, their invasion 
caused people to be deported and scattered. All the different battles and, and wars that had gone on have resulted in many, many descendants of Abraham being scattered around the world. And so this is saying God's going to draw them back. He's going he's to bring them back to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. But then we can also interpret this on a second level as well, because we understand it from the New Testament that when, when God is talking about his people, that he's not just talking about his people in an ethnic sense, is he? He's talking about his people that he will redeem, and not just from Judah and Israel, but from all of the nations of the world. And so in the new heavens and new earth, when Jesus returns, he will bring all of his peoples together. He will, he will regather them. There will be a homecoming, if you will. And this verse says that the Lord will do this a second time. What does that mean? There's a little bit of debate about that. Um, one view is, and I tend to favor this view, is that the first time was Egypt. So when God took his people from a foreign land and he brought them home from Egypt, that, that was like the first homecoming. And now after the exile, after Assyria, after Babylon, there's going to be another homecoming where the people come back to the promised land. But that is like a type of the future ultimate homecoming when all of God's redeemed people will regather at a homecoming at the end of time. So that's the way I tend to understand it is the, the first one would be uh, Exodus. The second one would be after the exile, God draws them back. But that return after exile is just a small type or a small portrait of what's going to happen in the ultimate reality in the future. And he's going to bring them back. He's going to deliver them, rescue them from wherever they are. And he, he names all of these places scattered around on basically all sides of Israel, down into Africa, east, west, north, Assyria, and he's going to bring them back. He's going to regather them. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. In other words, what this is pointing to is in this future homecoming is a reunification of Israel under one shepherd. And if you think about it, up until this time that Isaiah is prophesying, Israel has been divided, hasn't it? So ever since the days of, right after Solomon, with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the, the kingdom of Israel had been split in two. One under a Davidic line, a Davidic dynasty in Judah. Another one where Ephraim became the dominant tribe in Israel, the ten northern tribes. And they pretty much went their separate ways. If you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll see sometimes when they're working together, but a lot of the time, they're at odds with one another. They're enemies with one another. There's hostility there, and there shouldn't have been. They're brothers, right? 
They're brothers. There shouldn't have been that hostility, but they ended up splitting and going their separate ways. But this future portrait of a glorious future envisions a reunion of both of those kingdoms under one king. And and there won't be this fighting and jealousy and squabbling back and forth. And they'll join together in victory. Verse 14, they'll swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people of the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab and the Ammonites will be subject to them. So all these peoples that have given them trouble throughout all their history, no more, under the reign of Messiah. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep the hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. Now, when you read the first part of that verse, you think, how does this fit into a very positive, glorious future when God's going to dry up the Gulf of Egypt and he's going to scorch with a scorching wind, sweep his hand over the Euphrates River? That doesn't sound good until you come to the end of the verse and you realize the reason why God's doing this. He's doing this to pave a path for his people to come home. And so just like God did with the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, what did he do to the Red Sea? He turned it into dry dry ground, didn't he? That's what this is pointing to. He's going to take that Gulf uh, of Egypt. Some even suggest it's the Gulf of the Red Sea. And the rivers Euphrates, which is over in Babylon, Iraq area. And God's going to dry those rivers up those, those waters up. Why? So they can have clear land, dry land to walk on, to come home. Homecoming, reunion. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. And this is the reason why I think the, the re- reference to second time back in verse number 11 is a, a reference back to Egypt. Because here it references at at the end of the passage. So just like Israel came up out of Egypt, so the Lord will bring his people back again from Assyria after they have gone into captivity. And the idea of a highway in scripture and especially in the prophets, the idea of a highway is a straight, level, clear path. So that someone can quickly come without any obstacles. I mean, we think of that with a highway even in our day, right? If you want to get somewhere quickly, you get on the interstate. Typically, they're, they're smoother, they're faster, they're straighter, no stops. So you can get somewhere quicker. Well, that's the same imagery when it describes it here is clear path. Flatten the mountains, dry up the lakes, make straight the curves, whatever, whatever it is to make it a quicker route back home for God's people. And so a future homecoming, that's a glorious picture, isn't it? So a glorious picture of a Messiah, a glorious picture of his peace that he will bring, glorious picture of all of God's people reunited in their home. And all of that leads to chapter 12, which is something to sing about. It's it's almost like this, this song, this psalm in chapter 12, it's like it had to follow chapter 11. This, this description of the future is so glorious, it's so magnificent that we've just got to sing about that. We've got to praise. And so there's a hymn in chapter 12, a future to sing about. 
Verses 1 through 3 focus on the Lord's salvation, a song of salvation. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Wow, isn't that a great picture of salvation? God is angry with sinners, isn't he? John 3.36 says that God's wrath is on the world and God's wrath abides on those who do not believe in his son, Jesus Christ. God is angry with sinners, but God also turns away his anger, doesn't he? Through Jesus. Through Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, God can justly and righteously show mercy to sinners and his anger be turned away because his son has paid the just penalty. So his anger is turned away and God comforts his people. And he reminds them, you are now forgiven. You're justified. You're my child. His anger is turned away, not angry with us anymore. It's a great picture of salvation. And one of the commentaries that I read very, very insightfully and helpfully pointed out, only God can turn away God's anger. Nobody can turn away God's anger except God. So God has to do it. God initiates the salvation. And he turns away his anger and he saves. And so they sing about it. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Faith, trust, reliance upon the Lord. He is our salvation. The idea here is of just God being our rock, God being our fortress, God being our deliverer. If there's anyone that can be trusted in, it is the Lord. Our whole life can be placed in his hands. And they're rejoicing over the salvation that God has given. And with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the idea here is that the the source of salvation is like a never-ending spring. And you can just keep coming back and drawing and drawing and drawing from it. And it will never run dry. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? Remember that? You can keep coming back to this well and keep getting water, or you can drink from me and you'll never thirst again. And so the salvation that God brings is a never-ending salvation, a continual supply of grace and the joy that that gives to his people. And so a song of salvation. And then chapter 12 ends with a song of mission. A song of mission. Because like chapter 11, verse 10 where it talked about Jesus, the, the coming branch, the root of Jesse being a banner for the peoples, for the nations, and looking outward beyond the borders of Israel, so does the last part of chapter 12. It extends the vision worldwide to a song of mission. In that day, you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among whom? The nations, what he has done. So not just Israel, not just Judah, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Mount Zion, the nations, the world, what he has done. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. And let this be known, where? 
to all the world. Isn't that a missionary call? That's a missionary call, isn't it? Sing the Lord's praise and make known to the nations what God has done. Sing to the Lord and let it be known to all the world. What did Jesus say right before he ascended? Go to all the world and make disciples of all nations, all peoples. Same same words that are used here. All peoples, all nations. Go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And so this is a missionary call. Even in the Old Testament to the Israelite people, it's a missionary call. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. It's a great song, isn't it? And when the Lord's works are put on display, his people respond in worship and they praise and they sing. It's almost like chapter 12 couldn't help but follow chapter 11. Here is the glorious thing that God is going to do in the future. Let's sing about that. Let's sing about it. Let's praise God and, and let the whole world know what God is going to do and what he has done for his people.